Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys this morning. We are thrilled that you guys are here. My name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and it is great to see you guys after an Aggie win yesterday. Uh, and after a first week of having you guys all back, we are thrilled to have you guys here at Grace, thrilled to have you guys back into town. We are going to be in the book of 1 Peter this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 to 15 this morning. 1 Peter 3, Peter writes in beginning in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we thank you immensely for your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have spoken and that you've brought light to darkness, that you've allowed us to see, that you've allowed us to grasp who you are and what you've called us to in life. And thank you primarily that what you provided us is freedom from guilt in your son, Jesus Christ, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can have an opportunity to know you and to walk with you and to see life as you've designed it to be. Father, I pray this morning as we walk through this talk, as we walk through this passage, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see how you've designed life to be lived. And that you'd allow us to see that what Christianity is, is not a straitjacket, but it is an incredibly expansive, freeing thing. And that life is lived to the fault and to the hilt, as you've called us to. And I pray that you'd allow us to see that this morning. Father, we thank you for a new semester. We thank you for a new opportunity to see friends. We thank you for an opportunity to regather as a church and as a college ministry. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would meet with us that my words would be yours and that you would do something in this time way beyond anything that we anticipated or we planned on. But might you meet us, and might you speak to us, and might you move in our hearts in a way that we never imagined. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, I hope you guys survived syllabus shock this week. Uh, I know it, for me, is always a dizzying week of feeling like, oh my heavens, right? Uh, my life is over, right? Uh, I, I always felt like there were two kinds of professors. There was professors who threw out the syllabus and said, this is enough for today. And then there was the evil professor who then continued to go on a lecture, right? <laughs> You're like, I'm just not really ready for this. This is all a lot in one day, right? But by the end of syllabus shock, I think you guys figured out a lot of things in just one week of school, right? You guys figured out whether your professors were going to be easy or hard. You guys realize, in, in probably just this week, whether you're going to have a 2-0 or a 4-0, right? Just from one week, right? Uh, you guys also probably realize just this week whether you're going to have a social life or not this week, right? As you walk through this fall, you realize how demanding your classes are going to be and whether you're going to have any free time whatsoever this upcoming semester. I think in many ways, professors in that first week of school are laying out a, ser- a series of ground rules for what they want life to be in the classroom, and in some cases, even for you outside the classroom, right? Their ground rules have implications not just in the classroom, but even outside the classroom. And so they're beginning to shape for you how this year is going to go. In many ways, I had a professor my senior year in high school that set out a, laid out a set of ground rules that was the most restricting, most fearful of any that I had ever seen, all right? His name was Mr. Donahue, and he came to school every day in high school wearing combat boots. He was reserve military, uh, and he was like an aged Adolf Hitler, all right? I mean, he looked just like it. Mustache, boots, everything. I was like, this guy is in absolute dominant control of all factors of class, all right? I went to an all-guy private Catholic school in Dallas growing up through high school, and so for someone to be able to control the classroom of a bunch of guys meant he had a very, very tight fist, all right? In fact, stories were told of this professor all the way through our junior year, all right? All the way through our junior year, we were already living in fear of this guy, though we weren't even in his classroom yet. But he basically had one rule. One set of ground rules, if you will, for what he wanted his class to be and how it was to unfold, and that was this. 
There was no sleeping. No one was allowed to sleep in his class. We didn't know what was going to happen if someone ever did fall asleep, but we were so terrified, none of us wanted to find out, right? But it would take about six weeks in that first uh, stretch of the fall, uh, that fr- uh, my senior year in high school, before finally someone would fall asleep, right? And so for those of us that were in the class, we all kind of wrestled between, hey, we want to protect this guy and wake him up, but we're all dying to know what's going to happen if someone falls asleep, right? So we just kind of let things go their own natural way, right? And so uh, this poor chap had the kind of the head bob thing, you know, where it's like whiplash and then back up, whiplash and back up, right? But he just slept all the way through it, all right? And eventually he would get to a place on his desk, hands on his forehead, and he was just out cold. So all of us are going, oh my heavens, what is going to happen, all right? My professor ends up beginning to kind of trail off vocally, uh, and he completely stops his lecture, and at this point in time in the class, it is dead silence, all right? You could hear a pin drop, and we are all hanging on suspense wondering what in the world is going to happen. Professor ends up going to the dry erase board where he grabs a red felt-tip marker, all right? Takes the cap off, and he begins walking the aisle toward this poor, poor chap, all right? And he begins to take the red felt-tip marker, and he begins to draw slowly on the kid's neckline, all right? And, and we're all going, what? Like, what's going on, all right? Of course, a kid who's getting pressure on his neckline, which is not what you normally have happening while you're sleeping, right? Immediately, instinctually grabs his neckline and then looks at his hands where there is red, all over his hands, all right? And then he begins to look up at our professor who's now standing in the aisle, not with a red felt-tip marker, but with a pocket knife. (laughs) Oh, my heavens, right? I think if that happened today, there'd probably be a lawsuit. He probably wouldn't be teaching, all right? But he would become the principal of that school, all right? Man had absolute control on the classroom, all right? Didn't care if it was 30 or 100 high school seniors who thought they were big stuff. He was in absolute dominant control of everything that we thought and everything that we did. Uh, He controlled everything in that classroom, all right? I think for many of us, maybe you yourselves, and I think for our world at large, as they think of Christianity, they think of Christianity in the same way that I thought of high school senior uh, year world history class, right? An experience so rigid, so confining, so restricting that determined everything that I was supposed to think and everything that I was supposed to do. I think there are many of you maybe here this morning who are checking out church, checking out Christianity, Many in our world at large that when they think of Christianity, what they think of is a straight jacket religion that tells you what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. In fact, a, a young artist in Brooklyn said like this, that Christians believe they have the absolute truth that everyone else has to believe or else. And that attitude endangers everyone's freedom. See, the primary assumption, the primary value in our culture at large today is personal choice. I should be able to choose what I believe. I should be able to choose what I do. And the moment someone tells me what to think or the moment someone tells me what to do, my rights have been vanquished and all of a sudden I am ready to fight, right? That's the primary assumption, the primary value, I think, of our world at large right now. In fact, a social activist named Emma Goldman would take it even further when she would say this about Christianity. She goes beyond just the issue of freedom to this and she says that Christianity is the leveler of the human race the breaker of man's will to dare and to do, an iron net, a straight jacket, which does not allow him to expand or grow. I'm going to ask you, as you think about Christianity, how do you perceive it? Do you perceive it as something that allows you into a relationship with a God of the universe that is expanding, growing, and fulfilling? Or do you see Christianity as something that determines like a straight jacket what you're to think and what you're to do? 
I think by and large, the basic value, the basic assumption of what Christianity is in our world at large is that it is a straitjacket. That it tells you and predetermines for you how you're to think and how you're to act. And I want to ask the question this morning, how do you perceive of Christianity? What do you think it is? What do you think this thing is all about? Why do you think that we gather every Sunday morning? Is it just for something that's a straitjacket that tells you how to think and how to act? I don't think that's what Christianity is at all. We're going to talk a little bit more about what is, non- or what is non-negotiable in Christianity and what is negotiable, right? We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. But by and large, this fall, as we walk through the series of what we've entitled Culture Matters, we're going to try to speak to a series of really controversial, challenging topics from uh, art and social media and entertainment to politics to economics. We're going to go to sexuality, even homosexuality. We're going to cover the gamut this fall, all right? But by and large, as we speak on those issues as a church or as someone who knows Jesus Christ, the moment that we say, hey, the Bible says, for many in our culture and for many in our world, the conversation is over. <laughs> Stops right there. Because the moment we mention the Bible or the moment we mention religion or Christianity, many are saying to us, <laughs> I don't need an absolute external standard of truth that tells me what to do and what to think. I want to figure it out for myself and I want to determine for myself how I ought to think and how I ought to act. Exactly what is Christianity doing and exactly what is this relationship we've been invited into with Jesus Christ? How does it work? And ultimately for us as a church, for us as we walk through a series of really challenging, controversial issues this fall, I think one of the things we need to do from the outset is lay out a series of ground rules, if you will, for how we even enter into those discussions with the culture at large. Because we cannot start with the Bible says, right? From the very outset, we have to figure out how we engage a culture when the Bible has been taken away from us. How do we speak and how do we act and how do we enter into the cultural arena at large on some of these really challenging issues when from the very outset the Bible is discounted? What do we do? How do we respond in that context? I think 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 15 are going to give us a great series and set of ground rules as we enter into that debate and that discussion. I think 1 Peter is wonderful along those lines. It's going to give us a series of tracks to run on, a series of ground rules, so to speak, so that we can enter into the debate and the discussion with our culture at large, maintaining our belief in what the Bible has said, but knowing how to engage our culture well. All right? That's what we want to do this morning. That's what we're going to hope to do on a series of issues as we walk through this fall, a series of really challenging, controversial issues, really, in many ways. All right? So that's where we're heading this fall. It's also where we're going to head this morning. All right? I want you guys to notice verse 13 and 14. I want you guys to see exactly where Peter begins. All right? Notice his first interest. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Why does Peter begin with such a defensive stance? Why is Peter's concern so much of a defensive stance? Why is he saying, do not be afraid, do not be troubled? Uh, If you guys were with us a little bit last week, we talked about the fact that the Christian church, those who know Jesus Christ, and they've entered into their culture, they are by nature a minority status. And as that minority status in terms of what they believe and the kind of life they've been called to, because of that minority status, it's not coincidental, it is not surprising that attack would come upon the Christian faith and upon the Christian life on the basis of that minority status. Peter is writing to a church and to believers who've been scattered out in the midst of incredible persecution, and so he says to them, hey, do not be afraid of the attack that's coming. (laughs) Do not be afraid of the accusations that are coming at you for your faith and your life. Do not be intimidated by them. No matter how strong, no matter how fierce, no matter how educated and how much more older someone is than you, do not be troubled when someone accuses you or attacks you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not be intimidated. 
It's interesting. We're, I want to kind of walk you guys through this morning, in a sense, a series of primary accusations against the Christian faith. A series of primary arguments that are really raging today as to why the Christian faith is ridiculous or should be discounted and disregarded. And ultimately, I want you guys to have a little sense of the nature of those arguments so that you have a sense of how to respond to them. Because in many ways, people are upset with the Christian faith because they see it as a straitjacket, a set of absolutes that determine how you're to think and how you're to act. But what's fascinating, if not ironic, is that the very arguments that are coming against Christianity are just a different set of absolutes. In many ways, I'd submit to you guys that everyone loves Target, all right? Everyone loves a one-stop shopping experience, a one-size-fits-all, all right? You ladies are kind of laughing because you know you love Target, all right? Target is like the quintessential budget breaker in our family, all right? One trip to Target, and it's over for the month, right? You know, you got clothes, you got groceries, you got Starbucks, heaven praise the Lord, right? All in one spot, all right? Anything that you need, Target has, all right? And so in many ways, I I think many people are accusing Christianity of being a Target in a sense, a one-stop shopping experience, a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And they're saying, no, 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 religion and faith and belief are not meant to be a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. But what's ironic is that the very accusations and the very arguments that are presented against Christianity are just a different set of absolutes. It's just a different kind of Target, Everybody does target. Everybody is looking at a series of competing absolutes, another different argument or explanation for uh, why we exist, what we're called to do, who we are, and who God is. Everyone is providing some kind of absolute argument. And I think even just a little bit of training as to what those arguments are makes all the world of a difference. I had a good friend in college who literally was probably about 250, 270, all right? Uh, and he had an unusual habit, all right? He would consistently paint himself green and on a moment's notice pose as the Incredible Hulk. No lie, all right? Which made Halloween awesome, camp skits awesome, or even a church skit if we needed somebody that was an Incredible Hulk. He was there at a moment's notice, all right? Uh, and so in his circle of friends, he had a really petite, precious girl one day who was taking self-defense classes, all right? Uh, a, you know, maybe, maybe 90 pounds on a good day, all right? Uh, precious, petite, sweet little girl taking self-defense classes, and she's telling her friends about these classes. And my, this guy of mine, uh, 250, Incredible Hulk, says to her, I don't care the training you're getting. If a guy my size wants to hurt you, it's over for you, all right? That's what he says to her. And she does not buck. She does not fold. She says, look, I, I so trust my training and my techniques. You come at me, and we'll see what happens, all right? And so all of a sudden, it's on, right? All of the friends kind of gather around. They're all dying to see what's going to happen, all right? And she says to the guy who's 250, all right? He says, you come at me from behind. You, you mug me, put me in a stranglehold, and we'll just see what happens, all right? And so sure enough, he kind of waits so that she doesn't know when he's going to exactly come. Everybody's kind of waiting and watching to see what's going to happen, right? And eventually he comes at her, he puts her in, puts her in a stranglehold, and before he knows it, and anyone else who's watching, she is somehow, 90 pounds, no lie, flipped him over her shoulder and landed him on his back, all right? Like that, boom, all right, over, all right? The guy is dazed and confused, lying on the ground going, what in the world just happened, all right? In fact, another guy that was watching the whole scene was so moved by it that he proceeded to ask the girl out on the spot, and they would get married, all right? So, uh, <laughs> ladies, self-defense classes, you don't know where it's going to go, all right? You may be trying to push guys off, you may bring guys in, all right? So, so that's the deal, though. Here's the deal. That little girl, 90 pounds, right? Just a little bit of training, the first two weeks of training, a giant bully comes out here and it's a whole different game. For you and I, as you step into a college campus, as you take some religion classes, whatever it may be, in a dorm room, in an organization, uh, no matter the fierceness, no matter the strength, no matter the confidence of those who are coming at you because of your Christian faith, 
If you have a little understanding of how they're coming at you, it makes a world of a difference in your ability to respond to it and sometimes flip them on their back. Not in an adversarial kind of way, but to say, hey, don't be so intimidated by the arguments. I want to kind of highlight some of the most frequent arguments today, kind of give you a sense of what's being argued and how to respond to that. And then we'll kind of look a little bit more about how we actually should engage the culture at large in light of some of this, all right? So everybody loves targets, and ultimately everyone's got a competing set of absolutes. People are coming at Christianity because they don't like the fact that it's an external set of absolutes seemingly that determine life and belief, all right? Uh, But everyone's got one, all right? So postmodern argument. Postmodernism, I think, is kind of waning in a sense, but it is still very much at the bedrock of much of what we think and how we act, all right? And here's the argument in postmodernism. Personal experience and intuition determine truth and conduct for each person. Again, this is the hallmark of much of our culture today that says, hey, you can't tell me how I should think. You can't tell me how I should act. I get to choose. I am my own arbiter of truth. I am my own arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, right? In many ways, uh, this comes on the heels of the modern era that said that science would determine truth for us, right? That science would advance our society forward. And in many ways it had, but in many ways it also failed. And so on the heels of that comes postmodernism that says, I cannot trust science as the as the end-all solution to my problems in education and technology. Ultimately, my experience is my best guide. What I feel, what I think, what my experience tells me, that is the best guide for my life. The reality is, again, this is just another set of absolutes, right? It seems like it's putting personal choice in everyone's hands, but it's another one-size-fits-all argument to the culture at large, right? That for the culture at large, for all people, you, dis- you determine for yourself what is right and wrong. The reality is, it's betraying the very thing that it's accusing Christianity of. And even more, no one lives this way anymore, right? No one actually thinks that you have the personal prerogative to choose exactly how you're going to live, especially if it crosses someone else, right? Some of you guys followed the story of Miley Cyrus at MTV's VMAs this past week. That only proves the point of this. I don't care what sexual choices you want to make. It's not okay with the culture at large, right? The uproar that came highlights that you don't get to choose for yourself what's right and wrong, right? There's even a sense, even on a football field, what's classy and what's not. And so people are all up in arms about some of the things that happened even last Saturday of certain talented football players, right? See, you don't get to choose for yourself what's right and wrong, what's true and false, right? That viewpoint doesn't hold water, (laughs) It doesn't hold water even for those people groups that are minorities that are being oppressed, right? Some of the most moral relevists of our day and time, as they look at the world at large, they see people groups who are being oppressed, and all of a sudden, they leave their moral relativity at the door. Majorities do not get to choose who gets rights and who doesn't get rights. There's an outside external sense of a morality standard that really is attached to a God who exists. Apart from a God who exists, there is no real standard of morality, And so the postmodern viewpoint is on the wane. It's still there a little bit in the way that we think and the way that we act, but it really does not hold water, and it's really not even being considered that serious by philosophers today. Second of all would be uh, the pluralism argument. All right, this is what pluralists say. They say that religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. This is the argument. The argument is this, that you are a Christian because you grew up in the Bible Belt. Uh, If you grew up in the Middle East, you'd probably be Islam, or Islamic, right? You'd probably be a Muslim. If you grew up in India, you'd be one thing. If you grew up in China, you'd be another, right? The argument is that based on where you grew up and based on the family you came up on, that's why you are what you are. Your understanding of religious, even timeless truth is conditioned on your culture and your history, and you can't completely argue against that, right? 
In fact, uh, I grew up in Dallas, which is why I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, all right? Um, which also means that because they haven't played yet, I'm an eternal optimist until next Sunday, right? Uh, but in reality, sometimes sets in, all right? My parents, actually, who uh, we grew up in Dallas halfway through college, they moved to Houston, all right? Uh, and in like two weeks, right, they went from 20 years of Dallas sports heritage to like they, they became Rockets, Texans fans like in a weekend, all right? Uh, completely just ditched all Dallas loyalty, which crushed me, all right? Uh, but for sports allegiances, it's true, right? Culturally and historically, you are become what you are often because of where you're born, where you grew up. Uh, I'll tell you guys and admit to you guys, I probably uh, became a Texas Aggie uh, and had a huge love for A&M all the way through junior high and high school because of a girl in sixth grade. All right? uh, she was the cutest girl in sixth grade. She was the most popular, and it just so happened that she liked A&M. And so I wanted to get her Valentine, and so what do you think I thought it was cool? Texas A&M, all right? Worked out for me, all right? Um, and so I love A&M, all right? But because of that moment, culturally and historically, something began in me that loved one thing, right? The argument is not completely off, right? But surely with religion, it's different. I may be a sports fan. I may be a university fan because of a certain set of cultural and historical conditions. But surely culture and history alone do not determine religiously what's true for all men and women of all time and all cultures. Surely, right? In fact... If they think Christianity is because of certain cultural and historical conditions, then how is their statement any less culturally and historically conditioned than Christianity? See the fallacy of the argument? Uh, The only reason they're a pluralist is because they grew up in a day in which this is the dominant viewpoint, right? This viewpoint wasn't around 100, 200, 300 years ago, so to speak. The reason why this viewpoint is caught seem is because of the cultural and historical factors that are going on, right? The argument itself falls prey to its own accusations against Christianity, all right? And surely with religion, there's something primarily different going on, right? This isn't the same as sports. Thirdly, and lastly, is the power argument. It goes like this. History is written by the winners who write the history books, books which glorify their own cause, all right? The argument and the idea is that the reason why you believe what you believe or the reason why you got the Bible that you got is because a certain group of people got together in a room and decided because they had power in that day and time what you should believe. The argument has been put forth in many cases in many contexts with the idea that uh, Constantine in the Roman Empire made Christianity the official religion in the 4th century. And then a series of church councils came about that then decided what the church was going to believe. The idea is that the church was walking around absolutely confused, unsure of itself, divisive with one another. And then Constantine came out and really kind of helped them figure it out. (laughs) And at that point, with power, one viewpoint, one over another, and then all of a sudden they decided which books got in the Bible. The reality is that is not at all how the church councils function. That's not at all how our Bibles came together. That is a viewpoint that's been put forward. And again, I'd argue, how is that viewpoint removed from its own accusations against Christianity, right? Uh, Isn't it just a powerful viewpoint, a powerful group that had control that might be pushing this argument, right? In many ways, I I think it falls prey to its own accusations against Christianity. Uh, Some of you guys were with us uh, a few years ago when we did a series on hard questions, and we did a, a talk on, is the Bible reliable? I don't really have time to kind of stop and really answer to that question in a lot of specificity, but if you're interested in some of these topics, we did a couple talks uh, about four years ago. One was, is the Bible reliable? Uh, One was, does absolute truth exist? And we really looked at those arguments and really unpacked them with a lot more specificity and depth. And I'd encourage you guys, go to the sermon resources on our website. You can find each of those talks and find a lot more if you're interested on some of these places. And I'm kind of flying 35,000 feet over uh, and kind of flying through swiftly. But I want to give you a sense that in many ways, some of these arguments really are not that strong. Uh, They're all a different set of competing absolutes. 
In fact, for the church council thing, one of my favorite illustrations I ever got when I was in seminary was a church history professor said this about the church councils. He said the church councils were much like a riverboat, a tour boat that was going through the channels of Paris in the middle of the night. And what those riverboats do, they give, they give a really romantic dinner to a series of guests as they're going through those channels, is that there's a light that pans left and right along through the channel. And what ends up happening as that boat goes through is that it ultimately highlights the little lovers and the couples that are all the way through the channel who are all just making out left and right, all right, in Paris, all right, city of love. Now, here's the deal. If the tour boat had not gone through, would they still be there? Yes. But as the tour boat goes through, it reveals and sheds light on who was already there. The church councils are much like a river, river boat tour that is highlighting who is already there. The church councils were not deciding what had been decided. The church councils were bringing clarification and shedding a light on what the church had already held and what they had already believed. It wasn't that the church councils were going on, now let's figure this out, uh, and you had groups arguing on one side or the other, right? But by and large, the church had a clear sense of uh, what books should be in the Bible. The church had a clear sense of exactly what they believed about Jesus, about God, about sin, and about salvation. The church was not undecided on those issues. So a lot of these arguments that I think are really some of the most relevant and the most challenging and the most frequent that you run across, I think in many ways fall prey to the very, very accusations they're making against Christianity, and they're really not that strong. And with just a little bit of understanding of what they're arguing, you can flip them on their back really quick because their arguments are not that solid, they're not that strong. They're just a different set of competing absolutes. And really when you think about Christianity, what's fascinating about it in terms of it being a world religion is it is actually one of the most adaptable religions to culture of anywhere you'll find. Uh, in many ways, as we walk through this series this fall on uh, faith and culture, how our faith intersects with our world and our culture, we're going to talk a lot about what's the church's relationship to the culture. There's arguments all over the map on that, but one of the things that's fascinating, I think, about Christianity, it is one of the most respectful, it is one of the most honoring, and it is one of the most uplifting and even redeeming to cultures at large. If you think about the world religions today, most world religions actually start in one spot and they spread, but they stay centered in one spot and they look the same wherever they go. Islam started in the Middle East and it stays in the Middle East. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism all have started in one spot of the world and while they've grown and spread, they've stayed centered in that spot. Compared and in contrast to Christianity that started in one spot and has moved over the millennia across the world. Right? Christianity begins in Jerusalem where Judaism began and where it still centers, right? But then it moved to the Mediterranean world at large. From there, it moved to Western Europe. From Western Europe, it moved to America. From America, it moved to Latin America, to Africa, and eventually now over to China and to Asia and Korea. Right? Christianity, in terms of its movement, has not stayed centered in one spot, but it's moved through and become a dominant force in different parts of the world. It's one of the most culturally adaptable there is. It's not a straitjacket. In fact, wherever it goes, it looks incredibly different wherever it finds itself and wherever it lands. It's really, really different from most of the world religions. In fact, uh, one of the things about uh, campus that drives me crazy is, I don't know if you guys, as you guys were on campus, if you're a freshman, you've been walking across A&M this past week or Blinn, at least at A&M, one of the things that drives me nuts is that none of the buildings look the same, all right? <laughs> it just drives me insane. I'm a kind of guy that needs uniformity, that needs like uh, kind of a sense of coordination, all right? And I've imagined at A&M, not to be rude to anyone who may be listening to this later on, all right, if you know anyone who controls these things, all right? But it feels like whoever controls building decisions has been changing out every two to three years, right? Because there's no uniformity to the campus. It's not like SMU that kind of has one standard look as you walk through it. It's not like an Ivy College that has a standard look, Harvard or Yale as you walk through it, right? It's as if it's just a big giant hodgepodge, right? Architecturally speaking, right? Let me give you guys a few examples. One, uh, this is where I had my first class my freshman year. It's Heldenfelds, right? 
you guys just love this place. I sense it, all right? And you're hissing because it looks like something from the Soviet bloc, right? It's like, it could double as a prison for Pete's sake, all right? It looks awful, right? Compared to, now think about this, someone controlled that decision, and then they moved to the admin building for the campus, right? Completely different look. Cool look. Completely different look, right? And then came uh, recently this past year the MSC, right? Which is a blend of old and new, right? For Pete's sake, could someone just bring these buildings together, right? There's no commonality. There's no sense of their appearance and their aesthetics. They look different wherever they landed in whatever era was moving them and creating them. I'm going to argue to you guys, while that drives me crazy, it's also why I love Christianity. Christianity is the same kind of thing. Christianity looks different wherever it goes, and here's why. Historian Andrew Wells has said this about Christianity. Cultural diversity was built into the Christian faith. In Acts 15, which declared that the new Gentile Christians didn't have to enter Jewish culture, the converts had to work out a Hellenistic way of being a Christian. And what in the world is Hellenism, right? Basically, here's what they're saying. The early church in the book of Acts had an incredible conflict going on. You had all these people who were Jews by culture and religion who had come into the Christian faith. Then you begin to have all these Gentiles who had a completely different cultural background coming into the Christian faith, coming into one community. And they were wrestling with what should the church, the Christian church, do culturally speaking? Should these Gentiles have to adopt the Jewish culture, which would become a Christian culture? And the decision in Acts 15, the decision from that point moving forward was no. Ephesians 2 will talk about the Jew and Gentiles coming into one body, and God broke the dividing wall between those cultures in terms of their hostility. The church is a multi-ethnic community and organism, which is why we sometimes have so much conflict, right? It's supposed to be a unified body of incredible diversity, which is why when the church moves into different parts and different cultures, it looks so different. The church in the northeast of America looks very different than the church here in Texas. The, The Christian church in Korea and in China looks incredibly different than the church that's here in America. Completely different. And that's the beauty of what Christianity is, is that, yes, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there is a set of absolutes, but there's incredible adaptability, uh, flexibility, freedom to determine and to live out as God has designed you to be. It is not a straitjacket that determines everything that you're to think and everything that you're to say and everything that you're to do. That's not what Christianity is. It's not how it's evidenced itself throughout the cultures of our world and throughout much of world and church missions. That's what makes Christianity, I think, so unique. Um, In fact, there is incredible adaptability, but there's also some absolutes, right? Despite the flexibility, despite the cultural diversity of the church, there are a set of absolutes, so to speak, about the church, right? Uh, You cannot just believe anything, right? In fact, I think that makes many people think that the church is narrow-minded, right? Well, here's the reality. Every community in our culture has a set of assumptions and understandings about something that makes them a community and separates them from the world, right? The very nature of a community, the very nature of a group is a commonly held understanding of something or value or interest that is held in such a way that makes it different from the rest of the world. The church, by and large, has a set of absolutes, a set of non-negotiables that are absolutely critical. Peter will speak to those in verse 15. Notice what he says. But sanctify Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. A couple of things I want you guys to see that for the Christian church, there is a common head. There is a common authority. Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord or as master in your hearts. But for the Christian church, there is a shared authority, a shared master over them. Uh, Paul was saying in Ephesians 1 that God gave Christ as head over the church. He is the authority over this multi-ethnic community. 
Not just that there's a shared head, but there's also a common hope. He says, give an account for the hope that is in you. It's fascinating the way he says it here. Uh, many, uh, some of your texts and some of your translations may say apology. Uh, and the idea is, it's not that, hey, I'm so sorry that I'm a Christian and that I believe in Jesus. That's not what this text is saying, right? It's give an account, give an explanation for why you believe what you believe. It's not wrong to be able to share your faith. It's not wrong to be able to give an explanation for who you believe Jesus to be and what you believe him to have done for you and how he's working in your life now. Your testimony of what God has done in your life is one of the most powerful tools you have. But there is a common hope that the Christian church has that is a non-negotiable, that realizes that apart from God, man was utterly depraved and lost. That our sin and our transgressions against the holiness of God has so marred the relationship with God and man that God and man are utterly separate. And that man could do nothing to achieve the grace and the mercy of God except for what God did on man's behalf when he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh and who lived on our behalf and who lived perfectly righteously and then who would die in our place. That he would receive the death that should have been ours, that he would receive the penalty and the sin that should have been ours so that we could receive a life that shouldn't have been ours. That because of what Jesus has done, we have the hope and, and, and an opportunity to be reconciled to God himself. Not on the basis of what we can have done and what we merit, but on the basis of what God has done for us. That's the hope that the Christian church has. And that hope separates it from every other world religion that sees there is a value in what you can do and what you can merit. The Christian faith says no. That utterly, we are utterly in despair and utterly separate from God apart from what God has done for us, which is why grace is so unique for the Christian. And it says that God has given to me something I could not merit and I could not earn. That he's extended me something I can never purchase, I can never work toward. He's extended it to me in utter love and in utter grace, expecting nothing because we can never pay it back. And that's the hope the Christian church has. That's the hope that we extend to you guys even this morning that you would have an opportunity if you don't know Jesus Christ to know him this morning, to make a decision today that I want to know that Jesus. That Christianity is not a straight jacket. It is an exchange of death to life, of guilt to freedom, of despair to hope. That is what Christianity is. It is a remaking and a transformation that moves us to all that God intended for our lives to be. It is incredibly expansive. It is incredibly freeing. It is incredibly transforming. It is nothing like it's built to be, if you know it from the inside out. It's fascinating, I think, for many ways, as we think about the Christian church, as you think about a room even like this, you guys all come from different backgrounds, which is why sometimes for the church, it's really hard for us to get along, right? Uh, We have different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different strengths, different weaknesses, which is why I think really what the church is meant to be and where the church shows its merits and its power is not on a Sunday morning in a gathering like this, but is in the real context of community in a small group. That ultimately what the church community is about is gathering around one unified understanding of truth and then experiencing the great incredible diversity that the church is. And that is lived out and that is found in the context of a small group as in no other context that the church can pull off. What you will find in terms of your experience on the word of God and what you'll find in your experience of community, you will find more powerfully and more transformatively in a small group than you will find here on a Sunday morning. And so ultimately this morning, one of the things we'll do as we end the service is we want to challenge you guys, consider getting involved. I know there's a lot of great ministries on campus. There's a lot of great churches in town. I think there's a lot of great small group options here. So wherever it is, let me challenge you guys to find a small group. Find a group of people who will rally around an understanding of truth that is Christian and that will live life out in a way that will stretch you and that you'll be known, that you'll be loved, and that you'll grow. 
Christian community is not always easy because we're different. But we need one another. And because of those differences, there's a kind of strengths and gifts that come together that really show an incredible beauty as if a rainbow of great diversity. And when you have that incredible diversity in the midst of incredible unity in a small group, you really get the sense of the power and the life of the church. So really, in many ways for you guys, let me kind of highlight for you guys kind of the small groups that we're doing. For you incoming freshmen, Dulos is really the primary thing that we kind of highlight for you guys. The best spot to meet freshmen, the best spot to really rally around the Word of God and to experience community here at Grace, if you're a freshman, is Dulos. They kick off this Wednesday, all right? And for you upperclassmen, there's a ton of small groups. We'll talk more about those later this morning. You've got a ton of information on your sign-up form, but we'd love for you guys to consider those. Here's what I love most, though, about the church. It has incredible absolutes and incredible adaptability, but here's what grieves me about the church. Uh, The church has realized and figured out quite well how to speak accurately to what we believe, right? As you look through the church's impact in the culture in the last hundred years, the church has not missed the boat necessarily in being accurate in what we need to say as we've entered into the cultural arena at large. But I'd argue over the last 10 years, last 50 years, where we've really failed is knowing how to say it. Knowing what to say is incredibly easy, honestly. Knowing how to say it is a whole different animal and incredibly challenging. Which is why the church is often parallel with marriage. As I will tell you guys, as a husband, I often know what to say. <laughs> I'm still learning how to say it, all right? Uh, and for us guys in marriage, for us guys in dating, we are dense. We don't get it, all right? And we're constantly learning that, all right? And so in many ways, I'm going to kind of show you guys a video that I think highlights that challenge. That knowing what to say is incredibly easy. Knowing how to say is a whole different animal because sometimes it's really just not about the nail, all right? It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. You do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's... Like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Come on, if you would just... Don't! All right. I don't know if you guys have seen that before, but I absolutely love that. I think it nails marriage left and right, all right? Straight on, all right? I I think it also is great for the church, all right? I think the church has figured out how to say it's the nail, right? We know how to speak accurately as to the issue as to what might be going on, but the reality is because the way that we've gone about it, we've completely missed the opportunity at large to speak to really what is the hope that we have, right? A husband and a church, I think, are often paralleled in this kind of sense in which, hey, we figured out how, uh, what to say, but we've missed the boat on how to say it. I think Peter will end this passage with five basic words that I think flip things upside down for us. All right, Notice what Peter says here at the end of our passage, all right? Uh, in the end of verse 15, he says, uh, Give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. 
the reality is that most of what we say, 90% is in delivery. It's not the content sometimes of what we say, but it's the nonverbals. It's the motions, it's the facial expressions, it's the pace, it's how we're saying what we're saying. I think the church needs a real quick uh, makeover in that sense because we've missed the boat on how to speak to the culture at large. And because of that, they've seen the church at large as basically a straight jacket and they've pictured God and Christianity to be the same kind of way. We keep going to the nail. <laughs> we keep going to the issue. We keep going to the thing that we're trying to fix for people. And what people need to know is that we love them and that we care for them and then they'll hear us at times, all right? It's all about delivery sometimes. And notice, in fact, he kind of gives a couple of basic signs. First, he says a command for gentleness, um, yet with gentleness, and then he'll say with reverence later. I think gentleness is what you see ultimately from the husband at the end of the video, right? He finally listens, right? He finally listens and he finally cares, not just to diagnose and be accurate, but to really care and show a kindness and a love to the person he's in a conversation with. I think by and large, in terms of the church, in terms of and being entering into the culture at large, we've been incredibly accurate thinking of what we need to say, but we've not done a really good job of listening at all. And so I want to challenge you guys, as you step into classrooms, as you step into dorm rooms, as you think about those that will have a different viewpoint than you, think about how you listen and how you show a gentleness and a graciousness to them, no matter where they stand on some of the issues that we'll talk about this fall. And not just gentleness and not just a kind of softness and grace and love, but even a kind of respect. I think ultimately the church has missed this one as well. In our attempt to be accurate, we've not shown the kind of gentleness, love, the ability to listen and the ability to show respect and not condescend to the culture at large. I want to challenge you as you think about entering into campus, as you think about entering into organizations, as you think about entering into dorm rooms, to represent and to speak of the hope that you have that you would do it with gentleness and you would do it with reverence to groups who would stand outside of what you believe and how you are living. In fact, uh, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, gives an incredible litmus test for the church and for many community at all, at all. This is what he says. There are two kinds of communities. First, he says, what kind of community has beliefs that lead its members to treat persons with love and respect, to serve them and to meet their needs? See, there's a kind of community that has a set of beliefs that when they move toward other communities that are different than them, they listen, and they show love, they show respect, and they even serve. Is that the church today? Far too often, I think the church has been characterized by his second litmus test when he says this, what communities beliefs lead it to demonize and attack those who violate their boundaries rather than treating them with kindness and humility? You know, I, I want to ask you guys, as you guys step into campus in terms of your small groups and in terms of us as a church at large, what kind of community are we going to be? What are we going to represent and what are we going to demonstrate to those that will stand in a different spot? What are some ground rules, so to speak, for the debate that we're entering into? on really challenging issues, issues that really go back to people's family background in terms of even some of the most hardest moments in people's lives. How do we respond in those conversations? Is it just about accuracy of an issue, or are we demonstrating and are we showing a kind of gentleness and a kind of love and a kind of respect for those that are in a different viewpoint? My hope is this semester internally, as a community, that you guys will grow in your understanding of the Word of God, that you'll grow in becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and that you'll have an opportunity in a small group setting to really be pushed in that direction. But my hope also for you is not just internal, but it's external. That your community, that your group of friends, that you yourself, as you move into a a series of different spheres, that you will have an opportunity to model for those who may not have any understanding or agreement with the church and Christianity at all. That you will model for them a kind of dignity extended, 
a kind of love extended and a kind of grace extended that really allows our message of hope and grace to really be heard. Because sometimes we've so botched the how that our accuracy with the what really doesn't matter. And that's my hope for us as a community. That's my hope for us as a church that as we enter into campus, we'll be known for our love and our grace. For Pete's sakes, we are Grace Bible Church, right? I hope for us as a community and as a church with one another and as we move out that we would demonstrate and we would model a kind of grace that forgives wrongs, that seeks harmony even in the midst of differences, that sees incredible diversity and finds that as incredible uh, advantage, that isn't just conforming people to think as we think and act as we act, but sees and celebrates in them their uniqueness for what the body of Christ needs, not just here locally but throughout the world at large. We're going to have an opportunity to end this morning in a little bit of worship. I want you guys to come before the Lord and, and have just a chance to ask him and to wrestle with him. Hey, what is it you have for me this semester? Do I know the word of God? Do I know that which is non-negotiable? Do I know the very sacred word of God that has been deposited and handed to me? Can I know it more? Can I know the God who has revealed himself in it even more this semester? What would that look like? What does God have for you? And I'd love for you also to think about, hey, in terms of the communities that the Lord has put me, the places where I may be working or studying or living, uh, in which I'm rubbing up alongside of people who do not believe what I believe, how can I live out in front of them in such a way that they're drawn to the aroma and the fragrance of Christ and the grace that's extended? How can I model that and how can I live that?